Good afternoon. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. The case on for oral argument today, we only have one, is the case of Mandy K. Cohen in her official capacity as Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services versus Ace Speedway Racing Limited, After Five Events LLC, Green Street Associates Limited Partnership, Jason Turner and Robert Turner. To my left, let me back up a minute. We go in seniority here. To my right is uh, Judge Fred Gore. He will be joining us on the panel. And to my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. I am Jeff Carpenter, and we constitute your panel for the hearing of this case. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. I'm Zach Ezor from the Department of Justice. Mr. Ezorth, do you wish to reserve time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. I'd like to reserve five minutes, please. Pleased to be representing the Secretary of Health and Human Services today. Your Honors, this appeal arises from an abatement order that the Secretary issued against Ace Speedway and its owners nearly two years ago, um, back in June of 2020. Those were the early days of the pandemic, and clearly a lot's happened since then. But if you can take yourself back, President Trump and Governor Cooper had just recently issued emergency declarations, and in a few short months, more than 1,000 North Carolinians had died of COVID, and our hospitals had become overrun. So to curb the spread of the disease, the governor issued a series of executive orders based on the prevailing scientific and medical guidance at the time, which, among other things, imposed temporary capacity limits um, at businesses, sporting and event venues, including speedways. Most states did the exact same thing. At that time, our neighbors in South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia had nearly identical protocols in place based on the understanding that COVID was more likely to be transmitted when people gathered in small spaces for long periods of time. And again, as I said, that was the prevailing guidance at the time. Businesses across the state complied with these orders, often to great hardship, and I, I want to recognize that. But Ace Speedway, in contrast, flouted the orders and repeatedly held races in violation of the capacity limits with thousands of people in attendance. And it did so even after the Alamance County Sheriff personally requested that it comply. So the secretary filed an abatement order pursuant to our state's public health laws, requiring the speedway to abide by the capacity limits. It did not. The speedway kept operating until the secretary was able to obtain a restraining order and a preliminary injunction. When the capacity limits were later lifted, the secretary uh, withdrew her claims and the injunction dissolved. Why were the capacity limits lifted? The governor took a phased approach to reopening as was the case in many other states, where the conditions on the ground improved, mercifully, enough for the risk to be abated. And the Secretary's order was tied to that same calculation of risk. So when the risk of COVID lessened, the capacity limits were lifted. Now, the Speedway has since filed an answer in several counterclaims, which are the subject of this appeal. We move to dismiss all of the counterclaims below on the basis of sovereign immunity. The trial court agreed with us as to three of the claims, but it allowed two to proceed. 
The first is based on an alleged right to earn a living, and a second, which is based on alleged selective enforcement. Because neither of these claims states a viable constitutional claim, they should have been dismissed. With Your Honor's permission, I'd like to just take each one by one. We can walk through. I'm happy to answer any questions that you have, of course. But starting with the right to earn a living claim, our Supreme Court has recognized that Article 1, Section 1 and 19 of our state constitution protects the right to earn a living. But the court has also said time and again that the state may act to regulate or even prohibit economic activity so long as it does so to advance a proper governmental purpose and via means which are rationally related to achieving that purpose. This is what's called the rational basis or rational relation test. And the Secretary's order in this context under the extraordinary conditions of the pandemic clearly passes that test. First, the order was issued for a valid governmental purpose, abating the spread of a deadly disease. There's really no debate as to that prong. Statute doesn't allow for the issuance of an order to abate. It allows for the issuance of an order to address imminent public risk, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. So what does imminent mean? Um, Your Honor, I'm having a hard time hearing you. If it's possible to just move the microphone. What does imminent mean? Under the statute, the secretary gets to determine when an imminent order exists. And if you'll just bear with me, I believe I have the language of the statute here. An imminent hazard is a hazard that is likely to cause an imminent threat to human life or an imminent threat of serious adverse health effects if no immediate action is taken. I'm going to circle back to my question. What does imminent mean? You used that term twice to define the term. Sorry, Your Honor. I thought you were asking um, what does imminent mean as defined in the statute. Well, well <laughs> if the statute defines what imminent means, that would be fine with me. Sure. Well, but it, it uses that term to define the term. So what does imminent mean? <laughs> sure. So um, I'll just offer you uh, my, my ordinary, you know, common understanding of imminent, um, which means immediate, uh, present, um, you know, in your face, colloquially, Im imminent. Um, I'm not sure I can offer, Your Honor, a better definition than that. So the secretary issued an abatement order to abate what was known at the time to be an imminent health hazard. And, you know, as I've said, there were similar orders um, issued in states across the country based on this common understanding that COVID would be especially likely to be transmitted in environments similar to a race run at a speedway. We've obviously since learned a lot more about this disease over the last two years. And whether such uh, an imminent hazard would exist today is really a different question. But at the time, the Secretary was doing what she thought needed to be done in order to protect against a grave and imminent risk. Now, we've talked about the public purpose, which is, as you've said, Your Honor, uh, preventing an imminent uh, risk of disease. The second prong of the test is the means have to be rationally related to achieving that purpose. And here they clearly were. Now, how do we know that? 
Well, first, the governor's order and the secretary's order both lay out in detail the understanding at the time that these were precisely the types of places where COVID could transmit easily from person to person and perhaps create a large spreading event. They talk about the risks of COVID transmission being greater in large crowds huddled together over long periods of time. Second, we have federal guidance that says the exact same thing, including pointing to sporting events as being particularly dangerous. So the order comported with that federal guidance. And finally, I guess I, are all sporting events the same for, for the purpose of these? Is that where they all counted the same? Under the governor's order, um, all sporting events were treated similarly. So you could be outside in an arena and have 25 people, or you could be in a high school gym and have 25 people. It was, there was a distinction drawn between large venues um, of 500 or more people um, and smaller venues, but m more or less, Your Honor, yes, because, again, um, I just have to emphasize that we have since learned that the disease is you know, transmitted in certain ways, but at the time it was well understood that these were precisely the types of gatherings that were high risk. So did, did I answer your question, Your Honor? Yeah. Okay. Well enough. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, finally, as I said, most other states, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, had the same types of restrictions in place. And this court and others have regularly upheld economic regulations when these types of indicators of rationality are present. Is abatement and regulation the same in the position of the secretary? Is that that our position that to abate or to end is the same as regulation? Uh, that is our position, Your Honor. And, and what I would say, um, I need to clarify. Um, there is a spectrum. And if what you're asking, Your Honor, is whether uh, the abatement order here was effectively a, a ban, um, as Ace suggests in their brief, we, I have to say no. But, um, you know, for purposes of the rational relation test, uh, I would say the two are, are the same. Now, you know, I alluded to ACE's brief. Um, they argue for a different test, um, which, you know, I have to emphasize. The test to apply here is the rational relation test. It's what the Supreme Court has said. It's what this court has said in numerous cases. And this court, as you know, is, is bound to follow that. But even under the alternative proposed test, which I understand to be something akin to a reasonableness or an arbitrariness inquiry, the order here still easily passes, and the claim should have been dismissed. And that's because the order was reasonable. The order was not arbitrary. And so... Well, don't they get a it, chance to prove that? I mean, what, what, what stage are we at procedurally? We're on the motion to dismiss. Right. So... I guess what uh, what are you proposing that this court takes into account? What standard are we using for, for that? Sure. Um, so in similar circumstances, um, and we, we cite to a number of these cases, uh, I think in footnote 7 of our opening brief, um, courts have resolved questions under the rational relation test at the motion to dismiss stage or at the, the similar position of, um, you know, motion on the pleadings. And so 
it, it's definitely well within this court's authority um, and certainly is precedential um, to resolve just on the pleadings here. So taking their counterclaim as claims that are still remaining is true. They haven't put forward a case that they can have a trial on? No, Your Honor, they haven't. Um, and the reason is because, as I said, there are all these indicators that the Secretary's order was rational. And if the Secretary's order was rational, then there simply has not been a constitutional violation. Now, um, you know, that may strike Your Honors as uh, unsettling, and I would understand that. But I just have to say, there were a number of cases in the 1930s. So if they can prove selective prosecution, then what, what other, I mean, they've alleged that, and they have facts that they can back it up. Like, if, if not this, what, what is their other relief? I'm sorry, are you asking specifically about the selective prosecution claim, yeah. Your Honor? Yeah, I mean, if they, if they have alleged facts that would rise to that and, you know, they can present evidence at trial, I mean, if, if not this avenue, what other relief could they, they find? So, so we haven't argued um, in our brief here, and, you know, and I would say that this is uh, an argument that we've waived, that there's some alternative remedy um, available to them here. And, of course, there has to be some avenue to vindicate violations of constitutional rights. That's what the Supreme Court's case in quorum is all about. But there are also these threshold pleading requirements, what the case is called colorability and what we discuss in our brief, that really just say that at a bare minimum, you have to allege in the complaint facts that present a viable constitutional claim. And I'm happy to discuss why the selective enforcement claim uh, does not do that. Predominantly, it's because this court's own decision in State v. Davis uh, forecloses it. That case said that um, bad faith for selective enforcement cannot be proven by an allegation that someone was prosecuted because they declared an intent to violate the law and criticized the law and then went ahead and did it. And for good reason, because if you were to accept ACE's theory on that point, you would really open the door for anyone to immunize themselves against future prosecution simply by declaring that they had later plans to break the law and then following through. That's what Davis says. So just like on a motion for 12b-6, if you've got a directly on point case that governs the claim and dictates the outcome, then that claim can be dismissed. And that's exactly what we're asking the court here to do with respect to the selective prosecution claim. I want to make sure that I address the court's questions about the right to earn a living claim um, before we move on. Okay. So seeing none, and of course I'm always happy to come back to that, I just want to say that the selective enforcement claim um, fails for an additional reason, and that's that there's no allegation in the complaint, or the counterclaim rather, that similarly situated speedways avoided abatement actions. It's true that the counterclaim says that other speedways ran races while the government's order was in effect. Can't deny that. But it does not allege that like a speedway, those speedways repeatedly raced and that local law enforcement officials refused to take action to put them into compliance. Those are the conditions that generated the abatement order here. And there's no allegation that similarly situated speedways avoided enforcement actions. Moreover, as we 
I think showed in the attachment or appendix rather to our opening brief, there were similarly situated venues that were later the subject of abatement orders, including another speedway in Carteret County. So this is just an additional reason why the selective enforcement claim uh, fails on its face. It does not allege either prong of a selective enforcement action, which as this court knows, is that there were similarly situated entities that avoided prosecution, and second, that the prosecution was taken in bad faith. Is that part of the record, the thing from the Carteret County Speedway, or is that just attached to your brief? So uh, it's not in the record, Your Honor. It's an appendix to our brief and one that we've asked this court to take judicial notice of because so what, what are we supposed to take judicial notice of according to you like i mean there there's several things that maybe the the appellees offered that are we supposed to take everything that's been offered to us yeah it's a, it's a good question your honor um and you know my position would be that uh, this case can and should just be resolved on the pleadings um if this court is going to take account of materials outside the record um, you know, we would just ask that they, they take account of our materials as well. Um, well. I mean, that's what you're just asking, right? You're asking us to do. Well, as I hopefully explained, the, there are many reasons why the selective enforcement claim should be dismissed um, with or without the appendix to the brief. But one thing that distinguishes those materials um, from some that my friend has suggested that this court consider is that these are simply just um, filings. They're the types of things that courts regularly take judicial notice of. We're not asking that this court take notice of even really their content so much as just the fact of their existence. You know, under Rule 201, they're not reasonably subject to dispute. They're readily accessible public records. Um, this is really in the heartland of. So when the governor calls a sheriff and says that he's, you know, the sheriff says he's never seen the governor call about a particular uh, enforcement issue in, in his career, that's not enough for to include selective prosecution? What I would say to that, Your Honor, is, um, you know, and and all due respect to to Sheriff Johnson, this was an extraordinary moment um, in the state's history. And it's not surprising to me that in 49 years of law enforcement, he had not received a similar call because the situation was dire. And also, the sheriff had telegraphed that he would not himself take steps to enforce the governor's orders, as was his duty. Moreover, under the Emergency Management Act, the governor is you know, authorized to ask local law enforcement for their assistance in carrying out these unprecedented orders. So um, you know, I, I understand it was, it was an anomaly. These were very strange times. And I don't think that that allegation uh, on its own rises to the level of selective prosecution. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. Like, shouldn't that be something that's that's able to be hashed out at trial? No, Your Honor, because, as I said, there are two prongs to selective prosecution, um, you know, one of which is the bad faith component that Your Honor and I are discussing, and that I think even with the evidence of the sheriff's interaction with uh, members of the governor's office uh, does not rise to bad faith under Davis and is foreclosed by Davis, and the other is this similarly situated prong, which says that you know, mere laxity in enforcement does not give rise to a selective prosecution claim. So you know, there, there are many reasons why this should have been knocked out at the motion to dismiss stage. I want to answer any questions that um, this court has about 
the timeliness of this appeal. Um, I hope that we've clarified these issues in our response brief to the motion to dismiss, but um, I just want to reassure the court that our appeal was timely um, under Appellate Rule 3 for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, in, in the event that this court disagrees, just to say that we've pursued this appeal diligently, um, there were delays in the mail, and, um, you know, filing uh, just shortly after the window, uh, if this court decides that's the case, we would ask that you just exercise your certiorari authority um, to hear this appeal. Are there any further questions? It appears to me that the approach to um, the eminence question as well as the rational relationship question is viewed from two different positions by the parties. The Speedway parties seem to view it from a Alamance County specific citing Alamance County data. Uh, the Secretary seems to view it from a statewide whether Alamance County is particularly affected or not. Mm -hmm. You want to discuss that at all? I'd be happy to. Um, and I, I think you've accurately uh, characterized one of the differences in our briefs. Um, I will just say that uh, to this, the extent this court looks beyond the pleadings themselves, there is plenty of evidence in the record that a public health emergency existed in Alamance County. The Alamance County Health Director um, said as much when, uh, when we had a hearing on this matter. And Alamance County at the time had one of the fastest increasing COVID death rates in the country. Now, you know, mercifully, uh, the number of overall deaths has been relatively low over time. Yeah, that, the statistical um, the statistical reference can be confusing. For example, if they had zero deaths and then they had one death, they had a hundred percent increase. Mm -hmm. So the statistics get a little squishy sometimes. So if you have hard numbers to put on that in relation to to other places, that would be more helpful to me in understanding your position. I understand that, Your Honor, um, and you know I'm happy to do my best to to try to find those um, for you. I don't have them off the top of my head. Um, but, but I will just say that, um, you know, squishy, to use your term, is right where the rational basis test lives. Because we're asking our public health officials to act often on relatively little information, make decisions that have serious consequences, and to bring to bear on the scenario expertise that they have developed over years and years um, dealing with precisely these issues. And so I, I understand Your Honor's concern, but again, as I said in my introduction, if we could just put ourselves back into that time where this was really the consensus among public health officials and executive officials across the country that these types of restrictions were not only warranted, but imperative, not only to protect the public health, but to ensure that our economy could get running at full force again. That's why the governor took what has been described as a dimmer switch approach and as quickly as possible and with input from the business community and the public health community, um, taking steps to reduce the restrictions, as Your Honor said, and, and get us back to being fully open, um, which is, of course, where we are nearing today. Council, as it pertains to, you know, the evaluation of the rational basis application and the question from George Carpenter, the distinction between a statewide approach and a local approach and, and the language of 
but by the law of the land uh, as it pertains to the constitutional violation. Uh, how can the state argue that rational basis without looking at the perspective of the individual claim from an individual claimant in an individual area of the state separate and apart from all the other 99 counties. How, how, do, you, how do you balance that in looking at um, just a simpler contextual view of the constitutional claim? Um, sure. I, I think I understand your question, Your Honor, and, and please let me know if I haven't. Um, you know, statutes apply statewide all the time. Regulations apply statewide all the time. And, you know, we trust our policymakers to do their best um, to find a solution to a problem that fits and is no more burdensome on people's livelihood than needs to be. It can't be the case that every statute is subject to challenge by some individual who either disagrees with its reasoning or thinks that under their particular circumstances uh, it doesn't apply to them if the statute or regulation was rational. And Again, that's what the rational basis test is all about. That's what this court and the Supreme Court have said time and again. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure that I answered Your Honor's question, but I, um, I hope I did. You're working with what you got. So, yeah. you would agree that there's a difference in the analysis as it relates to a legislatively passed and signed into law by the governor's statute versus an executive order or administrative order? I actually um, would not. And Interesting. I'd like to hear about that. Sure. So um, both the governor and the secretary here, I think it's important to remember, um, worked pursuant to statutory authority that was granted by the legislature to them. The governor, it was the Emergency Management Act. The secretary, it was um, our public health law. Um, and so, you know, first they were operating pursuant to statutory authority, which allows them to respond in emergencies. But moreover, the need for executive action in this instance, in the context of an emergency, I would say it doesn't heighten the deference that these actions are owed. But what it does is it reinforces the idea that the actions were rational. They were taken pursuant to statute, and they were well-reasoned. So, um, Your Honor, I, I would say there's not actually an important, meaningful distinction there. And in fact, I can, can point you to several cases um, in which our Supreme Court uh, treated regulations and statutes the exact same way. Um, you know, pesticide board is one example. This court's opinion in affordable care um, is another one, where you've got a, a regulatory body, um, you know, sort of issuing regulations or proclamations, um, and those being assessed under the rational basis test. So when, when the sheriff told him to go kick rocks or going to enforce it, did the governor do anything in response to that? I really apologize. I couldn't hear you. Right. No, he said kick. It's probably not awful. When he when he said he wasn't going to enforce the the rules um, or the, the administrative stuff, is did, did he do anything else to enforce it? Did he use it, ask any other uh, law enforcement body to to take action? Um, well, as I said, Your Honor, uh, you know later there were several other abatement orders that were brought. Um, it's really hard to conceive what else the secretary would have done. I mean, couldn't you take the highway patrol out there and shut it down? Um, that's, state, that's a state agency. Well, Your Honor, we, 
we elected to use uh, another state agency, which was um, the Department of Health and Human Services, to issue this abatement order. Um, and and so well, you're asking the sheriff to go enforce it, law enforcement. So couldn't you use a, a state law enforcement agency to do that? I see I'm eating into my rebuttal time, but, but what I'll just say, Your Honor, is we'll give you We'll give you some time to, okay. to have a rebuttal. Thank you very much. Um, what I would just say is that uh, the Emergency Management Act, which the General Assembly passed, expressly authorizes the governor to take precisely these steps, which is to really call into action local law enforcement in order to assist with the enforcement of a executive order. Right, but if it's such a dire, imminent threat, why would you just stop if the sheriff told you no? I mean, I, I, if, I guess that's a decision that the governor had to make. Well, um, it, it is a, de a decision the governor had to make. And um, as you rightly point out, it's not a decision that the subject of the abatement order should be making. I mean, you know, let's just imagine a, a scenario where a hurricane is approaching the East Coast. And a local government has to decide whether or not they're going to order uh, an evacuation. And the best meteorological data they can get their hands on at the time uh, says that you should. Of course, that's going to result in some businesses being closed. They order the evacuation, and then it just so happens the hurricane veers off course, goes out into the ocean, and the threat is abated. It can't be the case that there's a damages action for those businesses that were closed in response to the evacuation. Why? Because the decision to order the evacuation was rational. It was reasonable. And that's the standard that we apply in these situations. Um, thank you, Your Honors. Reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Yeah, please, the court. I'm Chuck Kitchen. I'm here representing After Five Events LLC, Jason Turner and Robert Turner. I want to address um, some of the things that were just stated, first of all, and look at some of the facts that are present in this case. First of all, we have not put anything in our brief that is not part of the record. When we had the hearing below, in accordance with uh, Data General versus County of Durham, we presented additional evidence that was not part of the pleadings. This is allowed by the rules. It was not objected to by the state. So what we put in is what you're seeing today. We did not have anything outside the record that we are arguing. A Speedway is an outside racetrack. It is not, as the state just said, a small space where people are sitting for periods of time. It holds over 5,000 spectators. It is very large. It is a regular full-size racetrack. What happened was that the secretary issued an order of abatement, and prior to the time it was ever served on my defendants, she initiated a court action in Superior Court. They were actually served um, on the day of the temporary restraining order. So by saying when the state says, well, they wouldn't comply, they really never had a chance to comply with the order of abatement. What they did do was meet with the local health director. 
they went through and the local health director submitted to them recommendations from the state. They complied, for the most part, with all those recommendations. They were not simply out there ignoring what had been done. Initially, they were complying with virtually all of them. The state came back later and said, oh, by the way, the governors decided you can only have 25 people in attendance. This is 25 people in an open-air stadium which seats over 5,000. It takes 1,000 spectators to break even. So, in effect, when they say this is a regulation, it is not a regulation. It is shutting down a speedway. There is no way they could possibly have races with 25 spectators without going bankrupt. When they issued, when the secretary issued the order of abatement, it doesn't say, here are regulations you need to comply with. An order of abatement says you will cease operating. There was no situation where they could have operated outside with 25 people. The state wouldn't have allowed it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't operate with 25 from a financial standpoint. So what we have here is a ban. This is not a regulation. It's a ban. It says you cannot operate this business. What the Supreme Court has said in King versus uh, Town of Chapel Hill, Chief Justice, then Justice Newby, wrote that opinion. And what he did, he said, it implicates, that particular case implicated the Fruit of Your Labor's Clause. And what was the next thing he did in the opinion? He says, therefore, we will have to see whether or not the police power allows what you did, which is the first step. That is the analysis. Does the police power allow what the government is doing? And he said, in that particular case, no. The police power did not allow for, and this was the, the fee issue in that particular case, of the allowance of setting limits on fees. This is the same thing that Supreme Court had previously done um, back in 1960 in State versus Warren. They said the first test is to determine does the police power allow it? There have been several cases which I have cited in the brief, State v. Harris being one of them, uh, which say there's three kinds of businesses. There's professions, like attorneys, which can be heavily regulated by the state. They can basically regulate us out of existence if they want to. The second is an ordinary business. With an ordinary business, the, can't, the, the state can't just come in and say, you can't do business anymore. Now, had the state come, come in and said, you know, there's this list, which is actually in the record. Here's a list of all the things you need to do in order to race. That was fine. They were in compliance with that until they got down and said, oh, and by the way, you can only have 25 people, which in effect closed them down. Now, the state says, well, other people did this. Other states did this. The question I have is how many of those states have a fruit of your labor's clause in their constitution? There aren't very many. 
North Carolina is one of the few states that actually has adopted that. Most states adopted the federal constitution, in effect. We went beyond that with the Free Labor's Clause, which was added later. later. Um, the Molay case out of Durham actually goes through the history of the clause, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But the right to earn a living is fundamental. If you have an ordinary business, the state can't just shut you down. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court in State versus Harris said that the provision in the Constitution that does not allow the state to ban an ordinary business is the, the preservation of such right is the principal purpose of the Constitution itself. What about uh, Chapter 130A in the General Statutes that permits the Secretary to uh, seek an abatement as a remedy? It, I mean, doesn't it squall, fall squarely within the police power of that agency? Yes, and what you can do, and here's, here's the issue that I, I see with that. If the Secretary is actually trying to abate an imminent health hazard and can show that there is an imminent health hazard. Let me ask the same question of you that I asked of Mr. Easeworth. What does imminent mean? Immediate. It's immediate. It's an immediate. What they're talking about is an immediate issue that is causing a, a injury to individuals, um, either death or serious injury. Uh, I have actually been involved with one of those cases. I've done those cases before for health, local health departments. Uh, those are not normally, at least in my experience, done with ordinary businesses. What you have is that third kind of business that these are, are based on, which are uh, businesses that represent evils, as the, as the court has said, in the community. Drugs, prostitution, uh, gambling. Those are the type of things you normally use an order of abatement for, because there's no, there's no protection on the Constitution for those. Those aren't ordinary businesses. What we had in Alamance County and Ace Speedway, they were having races. When they were having those races, people weren't getting sick. An order of abatement is directed to an individual business or an individual person. It is not directed to the state as a whole. What the state said was, well, we're going to treat every business in North Carolina that has a large gathering the same. Now, even the, the things that they brought in that were outside the complaint, two of the three had nothing to do with racetracks. The only other racetrack that they, they cited to where they had taken action was Carteret County Speedway. And for some reason, they filed that action less than two weeks after uh, less than two weeks after they filed that complaint, they took a voluntary dismissal with prejudice in this case. So that case had to be a fairly short-lived case. That's all I can say. And the question is why they did it to begin with. But beyond that, what you have is a particular business that's not hurting anybody. And there's no evidence it was. The only evidence in the record that indicates there was a problem was there was a report and I, it was some county, I'm thinking down around Mecklenburg, that said, oh, there was a person who had COVID-19 that may have contracted it from the racetrack or they may have had it when they were at the racetrack. The health director didn't know. They simply showed up on a report. There was no indication 
that anyone was catching COVID-19 at this racetrack. You mentioned in your brief that the racetrack had a uh, track and trace mechanism in place where everyone had to sign in. Did the person in Mecklenburg County or wherever, did they sign in at the racetrack? Uh, I believe they did. Okay. And the, um, well, let me go, it's, the sign-in thing didn't work, first of all, let me just say that. Um, at the first race, they said the, the health department had indicated that it might be a good idea to, to have an, an ability to trace. They asked people to sign in. People didn't sign in. They used fictitious names, fictitious addresses. It just didn't work. The second time, they said, we're going to make a copy of your driver's license. We're going to know who you are so we can get in touch with you. And they did. Now, uh, if the state had required them to do that, could there have been some issues with privacy? I think so, but the state didn't. The racetrack said, we're going to do this because we don't want people getting sick. So they could, tra they could trace everyone. Like I said, this is not a situation where it was just, we're going to ignore anything. We don't care about people. They were trying to do everything humanly possible for people not to get sick and still be able to make a living. Mr. Kitchen, well, it sounds like from the briefs and from the record that the local department and ACE were in constant discussions of how to try to tailor something. Uh, as it pertains to the first claim, what would have been the position of, of ACE if they would have said, hey, we're going to let you race. Um, but it's up to you to, one, dictate your ticket price for the 25 people we let in. Um, and we will facilitate any infrastructure you need to go virtual for your races and charge a fee to log on and watch. Um, what would have been the stance of ACE if the local folks would have told us that, hey, we're going to let them race, but we're going to put some things in place they can charge whatever fee they want to for the 25, and we're going to provide some local infrastructure to allow you to go. What To, to try to comply, what would have been a position of ACE to, to go virtual, potentially? That was actually asked, um, I believe it was Jason Turner, at the, the preliminary injunction hearing. And what he said was two things. I don't believe it was asked about the ticket price in particular, because ticket prices are much pretty much set. You can't. You jump up on the ticket price, people don't come. I mean, that's it's just that's a non, kind of a non-starter. You get high enough. It's zip zip code specific. I got you. Now, beyond that, they said, couldn't you just have virtual racing? And his thing was, yes, that's something we've been looking into. We would like to do that. But our experience has been when we have talked to everyone that is doing this, you can't break even. The best you can do is supplement racing when you have regular racing going on and you have the stands, then it's a nice supplement. It's nice money to have coming in, but it just doesn't work. They looked at every. They looked at other things. Could they have the? Uh, could they make changes to the speedway where you could drive up in your car and watch? That's. They even look at that. It wouldn't work because the way it's situated, they would have had to, to build mounds of dirt, and you just can't get enough cars. So it, it essentially. There was no other option for them. They tried to do everything they could. That's one of the reasons where I believe, first of all, that the state cannot ban an individual business, as was done in this case. 
that is an ordinary business, not something that represents some evil, not gambling, not prostitution, not drugs, but a regular business. The Supreme Court has said if you have an ordinary business that you are conducting on your property with your own means, you are not accepting any governmental monies. It's your business. You, the state can't come in and just shut you down. That's the first part. The second part of it is even if you said, yeah, the state can shut you down, as long as it's reasonable, there was nothing reasonable about this. At the time this was done, Alamance County had approximately 166,000 people. Out of that population, there was 295 active COVID cases. So before you get to, so right now we're looking at reasonableness, and then the state's arguing for this should be evaluated on a rational basis to us. Right. So what do you say to their argument that this should be evaluated on a rational basis? Well, for, uh, first, there's two. I would say there is... Um, three steps in the in the test the first step is do you have the police power our argument is no you, the, the state does not have the police power to do what they've done but the other thing is even if they have the police power then it must be um, it cannot be uh, unreasonable and irrational so essentially that's very similar to the rational basis test but you don't get there until you pass the first bar i would say though that it does not meet that test either because what they've done is said 25 people in a stadium that seats 5,000. How could that be reasonable under anybody's um, regulation, or in this case, an executive order? And I do not believe an executive order and a state statute is the same thing, just to get to, to that issue. Um, but you've got a situation where if you go out there and look at it, if you had 25 people, it would be hard to see the other people. I mean, that's how far away you would have been. And it's outside. It's not an enclosed space. You're out there in, in the sun, in the wind, by yourself with, 25, in, with only 25 people. That's just not reasonable. No one if, if that had gone out there could believe that 20, you couldn't have more than 25 people in there. I mean, that's just not rational. It's not reasonable. They have not produced anything that says there's nothing in the record that says this, there's been scientific studies of racetracks, and we have found only 25 people can be there. There's not, it just doesn't exist, at least not to my knowledge, and they haven't produced it. This is, uh, this is one of the differences between the two parties. You're looking at it in regards to rational relationship or reasonableness from the perspective of your individual uh, parties in Alamance County. The state's looking at it from the perspective of the state in general. Uh, I want you to touch on that a little bit, the way uh, Mr. Eastworth gave me his logic as to why they looked at it that way. Yes, yes, Ron, and I, I'm glad to do that. What I would say is it really gets into enforcement to a certain extent. What we are not doing here is really getting into the executive order and the uh, Emergency Management Act. There is a constitutional issue there. I thought it was too attenuated in this case to ever reach it. So it's not, it's not before the court right now. Uh, I will say that you will have that, as I understand, before you before long. But it's not there now. But with the Emergency Management Act, it's enforced by criminal, uh, criminal statute. I mean, it's, you get arrested. What we have is an order of abatement. 
Orders of abatement are not statewide. They're not, they don't go to everybody. They are directed to the individual. So an order of abatement is, okay, you've issued an order of abatement. You've told me to shut down. Is it reasonable and is it rational for my business? Because that's what you've done. You've not, an order of abatement was not to every state racetrack. It wasn't to every racetrack in North Carolina. It is an order of abatement to a speedway. And that, that is, sir. I want to touch on uh, selective enforcement for a minute. The selective enforcement, first of all, if you get, when you get into the rational basis, I think there are fact, it's a, becomes a fact issue more than anything else. And I would say that at this point, it's too early to make those kind of decisions. Had this been summary judgment or a trial of the matter, that's a whole different ballgame. We're at the motion to dismiss level. And at the motion to dismiss level, the Supreme Court and the Domensky case has said, you just have, a, have to have a colorable claim. That's a claim which is plausible, that may be asserted given the facts and the law. Based on what we have put in the record, I believe we have asserted a colorable claim uh, in this particular case, for a violation of the fruits of labor's clause, for the right, for uh, your right to earn a living, and also under selective enforcement. Selective enforcement, I think, is even more of a factual situation than the fruits of your labor. I mean, what you have is, did the state go after these individuals and not after others? What did we have? in the record. Well, what we had in the record was that there were, there's a, a, an affidavit uh, from Robert Turner saying between nine and 12 other racetracks were operating. They were operating, at least nine of them were operating with fans, just have spectators out there. We had the Sheriff's Department do an independent investigation in which they listed several racetracks they found we're also operating. Uh, the state says, well, but they're different because who knows whether or not they've been operating continuously. Well, these are notice pleadings. Uh, we believe we have pled more than is even required. I mean, we have shown, we've had a deputy testify, yes, I went out there and I looked at a speedway, I did an investigation, there were other tracks operating just like a speedway. That was subject to cross-examination by the state. It's all in the record. It becomes a factual issue to a large extent at this point. I believe we have a colorable claim, which is all we have to have now. We don't have to prove it. We only have to present the claim. But the, the deputy said Piedmont drag strips operating, 311 racetrack, trace, uh, some tracks in Wake County, and Dixie Speedway. He confirmed all of them had been operating. Had the state shut them down? No. But it also gets me, uh, well, let me back up for a minute. The one thing, though, that is different in this case than most cases, and, and one of the reasons we brought the selective enforcement claim to begin with, is they allege it in their complaint. They allege, in paragraph 28, I believe it is, of the complaint, yeah, paragraph 28, that one of the reasons they brought this was because 
Robert Turner had been making statements criticizing the governor to the newspaper. He said, I'm going to race. We're tired of this. We don't want these executive orders. He also testified to it. So it's in, both in the transcript and in their complaint. But they made that a part of their complaint. That's part of their cause, original cause of action, that he was there, out there talking bad. Well, they say, oh, that's fine. They say, under State v. Davis, you can target people. There's not any problem with the state targeting someone that's talking bad about them. I do not read that case in that manner. In State v. Davis, it says specifically, the state does not have the right to go after people because of the exercise of their First Amendment rights. And this case goes far beyond the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. And State v. Davis is saying, can the, can the DA go prosecute this one guy instead of someone else? What do we have here? We don't have a DA making that decision. We have the governor getting mad and saying, I'm going after that person. That's our case. I mean, he's, he's, that's what we're alleging. And what, how do we back that up? Well, the governor had his general counsel send a letter to the sheriff and to the board of commissioners saying he wanted a speedway shut down. The governor had his staff call the sheriff when they were on the way to a speedway saying, we want to make sure you're going out there to shut them down. The governor of the state of North Carolina got involved specifically with going after my defendants. The sheriff said he had never seen that before. I'm not aware of anybody else that has because it goes far beyond any kind of targeting that's permissible under the statute and under, under the North Carolina Constitution. That is the definition of selective enforcement. When you have someone with the power of the governor going after individuals that are trying to make a living by operating a speedway, just ordinary people, that cannot be the, the, the rule of law. It cannot be that the state can go after an individual and try to put them out of business. If you do that, that has to be a violation of the Constitution. I mean, it just has to. You must have protection of the individual. Individuals, that's the reason we have our Constitution, is to protect individuals from the overburdensome uh, nature of state government. We have to, when, when we have someone at the state level who goes beyond their duties, beyond simply saying, here is an executive order I am issuing, and I expect law enforcement to enforce it. Mr. Kitchens, being someone who's lived through more, more hurricanes than I choose to want to have experienced, what do you say to uh, the state's argument as far as the claim of their reasonableness uh, under the, the analogous argument of everybody f being forced to leave um, and the reasonableness of those efforts leading into the anticipation of a hurricane and that analogy. What's, what's your response to that argument? My response to that is twofold. First is, I do not believe, first of all, I, I don't think it's an analogous argument because you have a, the state saying you cannot operate a business, period, not until this hurricane goes through. You just can't operate. That's what an order of abatement says. You're shut down. So I do not believe the police power allows for that. 
We are not challenging the Emergency Management Act in this case, which allows for uh, emergency declarations for things like hurricanes. I, I also have been involved many times with hurricanes, uh, more than I want to admit. Um, I have run uh, emergency operations for counties. I mean, I'm very familiar with that. What you don't do in that case is saying, okay, John Smith over here, I'm shutting you down. Everybody else can go along with the business. But not John Smith. He talked bad about me. Can't do that. Beyond that, with a hurricane, uh, you have a very different kind of situation. You, don't do, you do not have the Secretary of DHHS issuing an order of abatement. They did not do what the statute says. Statute's real clear. Emergency Management Act, you issue orders, it's a misdemeanor to violate them. You can be prosecuted in district court. What did they do here? Oh, no, we're not going to do that. The sheriff, which I think the sheriffs in North Carolina uh, have been said to be your last line of defense against the state government. I really believe that's true. But what we have here is this is not a district court case. This is not where he's been charged with a misdemeanor. We've got the state secretary of DHHS coming and saying, I am shutting you down with an order of abatement. And as I'm sure everyone here knows, there's a big difference in having a court order and having a misdemeanor violation. Um, with all due respect to the court, I have seen a lot of Superior Court judges not be happy when someone violates their orders, and they take it very seriously. And I do take it very seriously, too. But this is very different, and what they did was very different. What they did was they went after an individual. They went after an individual because they exercised their First Amendment rights. And when they come and say, oh, no, that's not, we have the right to target, I do not agree with that. I do not believe State versus Davis says that. I do not believe the Constitution allows it. Just make sure I covered everything, Your Honor. I believe I've hit all the major points in my argument, unless the court has any questions. If not, I'll stand on my brief as to anything remaining. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Eastworth. We uh, ask you questions during your rebuttal time. We'll give you a couple extra minutes. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I'd like to just make a, a few quick points. You know, first I have to say, um, I couldn't disagree more with my friend's characterization of the governor's actions here and the secretary's actions here. You know, what my friend omitted is that there were repeated conversations between local public health officials, DHHS, the governor's office, trying beforehand to get the speedway into a place where they would comply with the executive order, as many other speedways have done. And so I just really resist the notion that there was any sort of targeting here. If when any, you say comply with the order, you mean have no more than 25 attendees? That's what I mean. Okay. Yep. So with that said, I just want to go back to the hurricane example, which Judge Gore brought up again. 
and just say the question under rational basis is not whether with the perspective of 2020 hindsight we should have made a different decision or done something differently but it's whether the decision was reasonable rational at the time it's that simple and it's for that reason that rational basis review is often not a fact-intensive inquiry. It is merely the court asking whether there was some reasoned basis for the action that was taken. I guess, counsel, the, the issue that um, the other side brings up is a unique perspective um, in looking at the reasonableness versus the amount of effort in enforcement. So, and using that analogy, if there was efforts to have the amount of conversations that you allude to that had, were the same amount of conversations being had with other raceways and with other counties? I know there were weekly and um, standard conversations between DHHS and local uh, municipalities and counties uh, about the pandemic. But can you shed any light uh, to this court as to the amount of conversations to and about specific racetracks and other entities similarly situated? Because I think that is something that it could be an issue for that uh, level of just blind application. Sure. So um, I think Your Honor's characterization of the types of conversations that were routinely going on at the time um, is correct. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't point to something in the record that shows that another speedway had similar engagements. Um, you know, this case is involving a speedway. But I just want to read to Your Honor um, the language from Davis that I, I think really forecloses the claim here. Davis says, a decision to prosecute is fine even if the decision rests upon the amount of publicity that one's protest receives. Selection for prosecution based in part on the potential deterrent effects on others serves as a legitimate interest in promoting more general compliance with the law. That's exactly what Davis says. That is exactly the allegation here. Going back to the right to earn a living claim, I also just want to read to this court the express statement of the rational basis test in the case of Poor Richards. This is a, a North Carolina Supreme Court, 1988. It says, the constitutional protections, both the fruits of their labor clause and the law of the land clause, have been consistently interpreted to permit the state, through the exercise of its police power, to regulate economic enterprises provided the regulation is rationally related to a proper governmental purpose. And then the court says, this is the test used in determining the validity of state regulation of businesses under both Article I, Section 1, Fruits of Their Labor, and Article I, Section 19, Law of the Land. This case synthesized more than 100 years of the court's case law dealing with precisely these issues, and it articulated that test in this fashion. That is the test. Thank you. Any questions? Questions? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors.